sometimes I think people feel like they're pushing a boulder uphill and they're working at odds with the will of the, the rest of the organization. And I've never felt that way at Slack, which is wonderful, but it puts this great responsibility on me to spend that support. And I'm not just talking about financial support, I'm talking about mind share across the organization, all kinds of ways that support manifests itself. Spend that support wisely and well. And that means that I have to really consider every choice that I'm making and be sure that that I'm not kidding myself. I see people within the information security industry do this all the time. You'll follow an old adage and you won't necessarily question the math behind that adage. And if you don't do that from time to time, the world will shift out from under you and you'll, you'll find that you're actually doing it that way because it's always been done that way and not because that's what the, the data and the science are telling you is, is the best way to go forward. From Cobalt at Home, this is Humans of InfoSec, a show about real people, their work, and its impact on the information security industry. My name is Caroline Wong, and I'd like to introduce today's guest, my new friend and colleague, Larkin Ryder. Larkin is currently the Chief Security Officer at Slack, where she leads the Comprehensive Security Program. Her focus is ensuring that Slack's sensitive data, especially customer data, is protected. Larkin joined Slack in 2016 from Twitter's Enterprise Security Team and has worked in engineering roles at high-tech companies for more than 25 years. Larkin holds a BS in computer science from the University of Vermont, as well as various credentials specific to privacy and security. Larkin and I met through a group of mutual friends during a meeting coordinated by Dr. Chenzi Wang. Larkin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Caroline. It's really a privilege and an honor to be here today and, and frankly, a delight. It is it's so nice to be making new friends at a time when we feel like our worlds are a bit small. Yes, same. So it is September in the year 2020 right now. And Larkin and I were looking out of our windows and comparing the color of our skies because we are both on the West Coast of the United States where there are fires and winds. And it's kind of a weird time. I could not agree with you more. It is so nice to connect. Thanks again so much for being here. My pleasure. Larkin, tell me about you as a young person and as a kid. I know that you, in addition to having a BS in computer science, you also have a BA in zoology. What were you like at that time in your life? Uh, wow. So if you go all the way back to when I was a kid, which I, I really count as the time before I started college, you know, I was very much an outdoor kid. I was the kind of kid I woke up in the morning, I looked outside and I, I wondered, you know, which direction I'd be headed off in and who, who among my friends I would meet along the way. Um, I grew up in a very small town in the center of Vermont. And it was idyllic, just fields and, and forests to play in every day, trees to climb, bikes to ride, and always people, you know, who you knew closely, they were your friends and neighbors. It was, it was wonderful. And there was, you know, there was sun in the summer and lots of green grass to play in and then snow in the winter, which was just amazing. You know, I think you grow up 
when you grow up in Vermont, you, you grow up building things because snow is just this great building material. You know, you're always interested in what you can make, what you can design. You become very aware of, you know, how you can influence the world around you in three dimensions. And it's, I think it's just a very marvelous and stimulating thing for, for any kid. I think kids who grow up around beaches and have sand to play with experience the same thing too. So I think that's a great thing for for kids to have. And maybe that's partially why I was always interested in science and math when I was growing up. Like I... I loved math from a young, young age. That was my very favorite subject in school from the very beginning of my school age experience. And that really carried me all the way through growing up. I did, you know, I was also always a very practical person. And so I found that I did very well in the biological sciences. And so when I, when I was getting ready to go to school, I was like, college, career, you know, what can I practically do that will be lucrative? And, you know, while I wasn't specifically interested in medicine, I was following a pre-med curriculum, knowing that that would afford me a, a wide variety of career opportunities. But I never really lost fundamental love for basic theoretical math. And so while I was pursuing that practical major, I was indulging in a mathematical minor. And that math minor led me to a requirement for my first computer science class. I mean, this was, you know, way back in the 80s when computers weren't in every home. So I didn't really have much experience with computers, but I mean, getting into my first programming class and just seeing the the beauty of how programming it just clicked with my brain, I suppose. And and the level of control and the the iteration of building the program, running the program, seeing the result over and over and over and how quickly and how satisfyingly you could build and rebuild and redesign and re-execute. It was, I'm, frankly, it was addictive to me. The rest was history. I was a junior and at that time and, and I went to my advisor and I said, I think I'm going to change my major. And she's like, you're crazy. You, you need five credits to finish the degree that you already, you know, are almost done with. And I'm like, nope, I have to do this computer science thing. And she said, well, just get two degrees then. There's no point in throwing one degree away for the sake of another. You've really done all the hard work already. That last year, or I should say that that first year when I was leaving zoology and entering computer science and I was taking all of those really core courses at the same time, you know, there were no electives to take. You know, I had to finish the core work that I was doing at, at you know, the very high levels of the zoology degree, but then start those first really heavy duty programming classes for the computer science degree. That was a pretty tough year of time, but it was worth it. You know, it's always good to push yourself and learn the limits of what you can do. And then coming out of it with actually a really wonderful career. I'm so glad I made that choice. That's incredible. Larkin, I'm looking at the dates that you have listed on your LinkedIn profile and just marveling at the fact that you basically got a computer science degree in a year and a half. <laughs> um, and that is, that is really impressive. Larkin, I have a question for you. I guess it's convenient that this is a podcast and that's my role here. But I am truly curious, do you feel like your studies in microbiology, organic chemistry, cellular biology... Do those concepts and do those techniques affect your work 
as a technologist, as a security leader, as a people manager? Wow, that is that's such a relevant question because you know as I evolve into um, different layers in my career, you you find that your anecdotal experience becomes less and less useful to you as a leader because you're not actually doing the work yourself, and so where. It's easy to take your experience and make inferences and draw conclusions and test them lightly and then try something that you think might work and then move on. You, you have this, you can take a very craftsman-like approach when you're an engineer and you're personally involved with the material. But as you become a leader, you, you really need to zoom out, right? And you need to really be dealing at a higher level of abstraction. And so what I find myself asking for more and more um, from the people who work for me is application of something akin to a scientific method and the resulting data and analysis of data. And I think that's really hard for them sometimes. I have to acknowledge that, you know, that's not necessarily how I always worked when I was them. And it's not always what feels intuitively right and simple for engineers. But, you know, it's important to, to run these kinds of real experiments when you're trying to make decisions across an entire department. I'll talk about Slack a little bit here, which is, of course, where, I, where I've been working. It's a wonderful security program. It's a wonderful leadership team. Everything that I've been able to accomplish in the last four years, I, I owe a great deal of gratitude to the security focus of that leadership team and the security focus that they've engendered throughout the organization as a result of their own ethos. So it's great to be in, in a position that is so well supported. But by the same token, I feel like every reasonable request I've ever made has been granted. And I know not every information security program has the benefit of that level of support from their executive tier. Sometimes I think people feel like they're pushing a boulder uphill and they're working at odds with the will of the, the rest of the organization. And I've never felt that way at Slack, which is wonderful, but it puts this great responsibility on me to spend that support. And I'm not just talking about financial support. I'm talking about mind share across the organization, all kinds of ways that support manifests itself. Spend that support wisely and well. And that means that I have to really consider every choice that I'm making and be sure that that I'm not kidding myself. I see people within the information security industry do this all the time. You'll follow an old adage and you won't necessarily question the math behind that adage. And if you don't do that from time to time, the world will shift out from under you and you'll, you'll find that you're actually doing it that way because it's always been done that way and not because that's what the, the data and the science are telling you is, is the best way to go forward. So I hope everyone who works for me is listening to this and they understand that when I'm asking for data and reports and, and analysis, it, it really is because we have a wonderful opportunity to take advantage of the resources at our disposal to do great things at Slack. And it would be just a shame, not only for us and for our customers, but the world, if we waste that wonderful environment that we're in and, and not make the most out of what's available to us. I think that's phenomenal. And I find it to be so refreshing. Something that I've thought about a lot throughout my career is how do security leaders make decisions about prioritization and investment? And 
there is not so much a rigid process that any of us can apply. And so I love hearing your application of the scientific method, coming up with a thesis, coming up with a hypothesis, gathering data, determining if your result is as expected. I just think that's absolutely fantastic. That's great to hear, Larkin. Yeah. And, you know, I'll I'll give one recent example of where we've been trying to apply that. You know, we've been working for the last, well, it's almost a year. It's been about 10 months on upping our bug bounty spend because our bug bounty spend isn't as high as our there are other companies that spend more on their bug bounty, and I and I really value the relationship I have with independent security researchers. I think we have people who, through honest love of our product, have engaged with us to help us make it more secure, and that's just wonderful. I appreciate that so, so much. And we've been experimenting with raising and lowering bounties to see what the re- results were. We were hoping, you know, if we raise the bounties, the top end, you know, we'll see, for example, higher severity and more meaningful uh, bugs submitted to us, more more interesting vulnerabilities that we can respond to. And, and then, you know, we'll be able to justify raising the bounties and, and we'll pay more and we'll have this wonderful result for our customers, right? Because it's all about making sure we have value for our customers. However, we are investing um, in our security program, there should be value there for the people who are trusting our service. But we found the result was actually the inverse. When we raised the bounties, we saw an increased number of invalid bounties submitted to our program, right? Which raises cost for us because we have to process all the invalid submissions, of course. And we didn't see any meaningful increase in the in the higher severity and, and higher interest vulnerabilities that we were hoping to, to discover. Um, that doesn't mean we shouldn't raise our bounties. I still think we should. I just, maybe I haven't raised them enough, but it's going through that iterative process of you know trial and error data collection analysis that is important for us to make sure we're paying the right amount for the value that we wanna deliver for our customers. Yeah. Very cool. Thank you so much for sharing that illustrative example. I have a silly response, which is that I have recently binged the Netflix show Dead to Me, which is a very silly show. It involves a murder mystery, kind of. And one of the things that they talk about in the detective's office is, do we offer a reward for tips? And one of the discussions is, well, if we put out a reward you know, you're probably going to get all sorts of incoming tips that are not actually valid or useful. But it is, it's just fascinating. I think there's a psychological and a human motivation and incentive factor to so much of the work that we do. And I just love hearing about this experience of you and your team working to uncover and kind of experiment with, okay, let's change this lever and see what happens on the other end and does it meet our expectations and what what really are we trying to accomplish yeah that's a great example and a really i have to say wonderful show i've also seen it I so wonder if good so silly and so it good is. you know there's a certain amount of black humor there which i think maybe appeals to the information security professional <laughs> um, you know it is a it is a profession. I have a I have a colleague who referred to information security as a doomsday cult. I don't want to believe that's true, but I do appreciate the humor behind that because you are just waiting for the worst thing that can happen to you to happen to you, right? It, 
in any in any effect, your point is well made, though, that that you have this problem always with information security that you're trying to engender the right behaviors or you're trying to encourage the right things to happen. But you never know if you're you're going to be, you know, making things better for people or or worse for people. Um, and, you know, so much of what I know people are working on right now, especially kind of in our you know, we're all operating in a world where we have a heightened sense of dread and um, a heightened sense of anxiety, right? And and we, we all respond to that pressure in different ways. And one of the things I'm particularly worried about is the increase, and, and there have been several reports on this, I, I'm sure you can, you can find them, the increased phishing that we're seeing as CISOs against our employees in in this time of COVID, and there are a lot of COVID-related attacks and attempts to, to lure people into clicking, but also people are working, you know, in an environment that is changing. Physically, it's changing. We're working from our home offices. The work itself may be changing, depend on the type of work that you do. I think certainly for security professionals, it's changing because every time, you know, we're security professionals, every time our perimeter changes, we onboard a whole slate of new risks, right? And so we have to constantly be working on burning down this slate of risks. And we've all experienced this dramatic perimeter change in that, you know, rather than having one office network to protect, we have 2,000 home office networks to protect. And, you know, people are leaning into cloud services and a zero trust networking environment to help support the transition of their workforce to these home office environments. And, you know, they have to find new ways to collaborate that replace the ways they were collaborating before in person. And all of that is is adding to people's cognitive load, all of that change, right? And, And that cognitive load adds to the stress. And that stress gives you an innate sense of like urgency and pressure. And there's nothing that an attacker wants more than a pressured, stressed out, overwrought employee. That's their best friend. That's the person that is most manipulatable by them. And it makes it easiest for them to get, you know, induce them to click on a link that they shouldn't be clicking on, which is, you know, the beginning of most attacks as an email with a phishing link in it. So I worry a lot about how can I how can I fight that, right? How can I as a CISO fight that? And, you know, people are always talking about like security awareness training. Like what what can you do to make sure people aren't clicking on the bad links? And it's like, I really believe that that's a, that's just adding more cognitive load, like training and awareness training in particular. It's a way of saying to the people who are, you know, working in your organization, okay, you know, all the other things you're worrying about, please add this list of things to worry about too, to that list of other things you're worrying about. Even saying that, even describing, asking people to do that, like I just feel this backlash within myself emotionally, like, no, no, don't ask me to think about one more thing. As a human being, I am at my limit of the things I can think about right now. So I'm really puzzling as a CISO over, you know, what's the right way to make sure that phishing doesn't become another another problem that the community within my employee base has to worry about. We're lucky. We work in Slack. That is great for us. That really reduces our risk, but still the risk is there. And especially as we're heading into election season in the U.S. and we're thinking about 
nation state level adversaries bringing those phishing attacks into companies like Slack. We have to figure this out. You know, Larkin, it reminds me of a conversation that I had with Dr. Calvin Nobles recently. Calvin is a cybersecurity professional at Wells Fargo. He's actually working on doctor research right now having to do with human factors. And one of the things that he and I spoke about the other day was the fact that there are industries where human factors have been studied to the detail that says, if you're a truck driver, we don't want you driving on the road for more than whatever it is, however many hours in a row. You know, you've got to have such and such number of hours rest in between because we rely on your human body and mind to be able to safely operate that vehicle. Same thing with airline pilots, same thing in, you know, aeronautical is what I expect. And we do have both cybersecurity professionals as well as all the team members at our technology companies who are effectively cybersecurity professionals because they've got access to various types of sensitive data. And it just... To me, it just makes perfect sense. And at COBOL, one of the things that we've tried to do for our folks, we recently implemented an emotional assistance program that involves like more flexibility and special support for for individuals that need it. We've tried to give a day off almost every month, uh, extra day off for folks just to deal with whatever they're doing, you know, whether it be helping their kids with remote learning, you know, supporting a sick family member. I mean, gosh, you know, in today's world, you could be helping friends or family evacuate their homes to avoid fire danger. Um, I spoke with one of my team members earlier today, and she said, you know, I feel a little bit silly about my level of anxiety with regards to all these fires. And I said, I think that it would actually be crazy if you didn't feel anxious and scared about it, like if you look out your window (laughs) and the sky is orange and it's supposed to be blue, if your body and mind didn't react negatively to it, then that actually might be indicative of a serious problem. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's so interesting. Like what about our world, you know, is, telling us that we shouldn't be worried about these things like why are why do we think we shouldn't be upset you know is is this our requirement as a society to like do we feel so obligated to live a happy and fulfilling life that we can't admit to ourselves that there are real structural and systemic problems in our society that we need to be confronting you know we have social justice issues we have climate change issues you know we should all be feeling bad about these things and I you know I I feel like we need to pivot away from the happiness culture into the awareness culture a little bit so that we can motivate ourselves to address these problems. I was listening to an interview on National Public Radio yesterday with Jane Fonda, who's got a recent book out, talking about you, you can just feel paralyzed about all the problems in the world, or, or you can, you know, finally pivot into a version of yourself that feels capable of, of doing things to respond to these incredible and overwhelming problems that we face as a a society today. And I think letting ourselves feel bad or anxious or unhappy about these things that are going on is, is a good first step. Like just, you know, 
sitting with yourself and, and owning how you really feel about climate change or social justice issues is not wrong. And if your company is able to give you a day off to do that, good for them. I'm, I'm so pleased to hear it. And I'm, I'm glad your company is doing that. Slack is doing exactly the same thing. We get um, a coordinated day off a month to, to try to disconnect. And it's very important that we all take advantage of that. Um, I think it's, I think it's important for everyone's emotional health right now. And I'm, I feel grateful to work at a company, as I'm sure you do too, that acknowledges that sometimes we need help taking care of ourselves. And it's, it's lovely to work in an organization that recognizes they can give us that help and does. Yeah. Very cool. Larkin, I love that you and I get to talk about these big problems You recently did a keynote talk at B-Sides about intractable security problems. And I wonder if you might share some of your key takeaways from that session with our listeners today. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny because... Yeah, it's one of the overwhelming things about working in information security is is you always feel like you're you're never quite getting through all of those intractable security pro- problems. Um, you know, the one that always comes to mind every security professional who's been around the block three times will tell you you've got to stay up to date, you've got to keep everything um patched and upgraded. And that that continues to be a problem the number of old Windows operating systems that are still out there and and vulnerable to not patch and, and other attacks like that. It's just it's just a little hard to believe that that we still are confronting that. Um, but but we are. And as security professionals, we have to be looking for where that risk exists in our organization. Um, you know, I've. I do a lot of interviewing for the company and, you know, one of my standard interview questions um, that you might get from me, they change a bit from role to role, but one of my stock questions is, tell me how failure to pay attention to an inventory management program has hurt you in the past. Because if you haven't got a story about where you weren't paying attention to some asset in your environment that wasn't properly cared for and upgraded, then you might not have the level of experience I'm looking for for that particular position. Yeah, um, we, that's a good one. Yeah, it, and it's a simple one, right? It's not, this isn't, these aren't complex ideas, but they do go to your sensitivity to this issue. And and you you have hopefully, when you've experienced that, you've worked to recover from it. And when you've worked to recover from it, you've probably learned something in the process about how hard it actually is to keep track of all the things in your environment. It's not just, um, you know, all the assets that you have of a physical nature. You know, it's things like it's all the accounts you have. It's all the web endpoints that you have. It's all the third-party hosting services that you have. The web page that your marketing team has spun up to collect, you know, logins for some new event that they're hosting. It's you know, it's all of those, all of those things have to be in some way ingested by your security program. So you can track the relative risk of each one and be be sure you're putting the right attention um, on them. So I, I consider those, you know, patch all the things and, and track all the things to be two sides of the same 
coin, but it's extremely frustrating when you're, for example, sitting at a dinner with your out-of-town guests and suddenly an alarm goes off and you need to respond to that alarm and you realize that you don't know who owns the thing that is alarming and therefore you have no way to log into the thing and either shut it down or patch it. That's my little story of how failure to pay attention to an inventory program hurt me, literally running you know, back and forth to the restroom, taking phone calls, trying to find the person who owned this one asset that was alarming. It's, it's, a, it's a classic problem I think we've all had. And, and that is certainly one of the intractable areas that I was alluding to in that B-sides, in that B-sides talk. You know, to me, the thing that that demonstrates so clearly about you, Larkin, is that you have been there and done that. The fact that you know to ask that question indicates that you know that anyone with reasonable experience has been through that. Um, And so I think that is so practical. And I expect that a question like that gives you tremendous insight into the way that you evaluate future team members. Well, and, and, you know, that's kind of the very definition of experience is that it isn't knowing everything. It's knowing the questions to ask. And I, and I'm grateful for all the experience that I've had because, you know, experience and sometimes the more memorable experiences do come from failure, right? And, and those are the, those are, for me, I know failure is, is a way I learn, right? And wanting, very much wanting to provide an environment for for my team and for my security program where failure is allowed because that is a way we're going to learn new things that we wouldn't have thought to try before. So we spoke earlier about how easy it is to stop using data and just fall into a habit of managing to the old adages of information security, but not really understanding um, the math behind that if, if we're not if we're not careful. Um, But running experiments also means that you have to be open to failure because if you're not looking at your data and letting your data tell you when you're failing, then you're, you're not really applying good science. But everyone has to feel comfortable that failure is something that you're going to, to, is going to happen. I think people don't like failure because they feel like it means they wasted their time. Time is so precious. Everybody's trying to make everything happen more quickly, you know, and that sense of urgency makes people feel like they can't waste time. And we really, as leaders, have to give people the time to do the experiments that can lead to failure so we can find the things that don't work and differentiate them from the things that do. I totally agree. And I love hearing about it from that perspective. You know, I think that it has become common for organizations to say, yeah, you know, we want to fail fast. And to have a bit of deep thinking behind that and to recognize actually what that means, that is a different thing. Thank you for your insight on that. Larkin, as a final question, you know, we're coming close to the end of our time together today. What advice do you have for the listeners of this podcast? I expect that it's hiring managers in InfoSec, it's practitioners in InfoSec, it's folks who may not be in the field yet, but are very interested in it. When you think about the next five to 10 years, what advice do you have for us? I'm going to share advice that isn't my advice, honestly, because it's some of the, the best 
advice I ever I ever got and I ever heard and, and really is the basis for a lot of what makes the security program successful at Slack. And that is something Ryan Huber told me when I first started working there because he really laid the foundation for security at Slack with the detection and monitoring that he built there. And that is you're never going to be able to prevent the worst things from going wrong. They are going to happen to you. And the most important thing you can do as a security practitioner is make sure you know when they do. And for that reason, you know, wherever you're starting, either in your career in security or, you know, in building out a program or, you know, maybe you're the first security hire at a company, start with monitoring, start with detection, start with making sure you know what good looks like and what bad looks like in your environment. Monitor, you know, set up monitoring. Have that be the first part of any application you build is how you're going to monitor it. You need that for debugging anyway. Any environment you set up, how are, how are you going to know that it's configured correctly or the configuration is broken? You know, run, figure out what scanning tools you need to run, figure out which ones you need to write, figure out how to securely and safely log that information and interrogate that information on an ongoing basis. That was you know, Ryan's ethos, and it has worked so well for Slack. I can't even begin to describe the ways in which that has has saved us as a company and is going to continue to be core to how we expand the, the capabilities of our security program. So if I had one piece of advice to leave everyone, you know, at any level of security practice from, from CISOs out, um, it, it would be to focus on detection and monitoring and alerting and response as um, the muscle that you work to build hardest every day. Fantastic. Larkin, thank you again so, so much for joining us today. It has truly been a pleasure hearing about your thoughts, learning about your experiences. Thank you. Thank you, Caroline. It's been a pleasure. Humans of InfoSec is brought to you by Cobalt.io, a pen testing as a service company. Like what you hear? Subscribe, share, or leave a review wherever you enjoy podcasts. And don't forget to say hello. You can find us on Twitter at Humans of InfoSec. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.